Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of sound. With us today is Ezra Bukla. Ezra is a digital signal processing engineer. He's someone who has worked deeply in the music space, so creating music hardware and software. And more recently, he's working in the hearing space, so on how people perceive sounds and augmenting their ability to hear those sounds. So Ezra, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I can't think of anyone I know who knows more about sound than you do. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for asking. Awesome. So before we get into the future scenarios around craziness like sonic weapons and sonic methods of dislodging tumors and all of the possibilities, I'd like to first just define what is sound. And I think a useful way to frame it is how is sound different than vision or than any of our other senses? What is it that sound allows us to perceive as compared to something like vision? And then maybe what is sound just fundamentally, um, you know, separate from our perception of it as more of an objective uh, phenomenon? Well, um, you know, there's sort of the, the sort of empirical physical definition of sound that is fairly straightforward and that's that it's a pressure wave um usually in the medium of air but it could be any compressible medium Mm -hmm. and um i think our perceptual you know our perception of sound is pretty close to that but um but can include uh we sometimes we perceive things that that aren't that seem like sounds but aren't actually uh produced by a by a pressure gradient, um, things Could like. Could you give like, an example? Yeah. Yeah, things like tinnitus, uh, where you know there's actually a lot of signals being produced within your own body that you can hear. Um, in, a, in a totally silent environment, there's uh, there's always some sort of noise in the brain uh, going on, mm. um, and you know. Maybe you can even go go to a sort of metaphysical definition that might be beyond our scope. But uh, I don't think that's beyond but, our scope. I, mean, I certainly yeah, have no, some follow up questions on that. But yeah, I mean, um, I guess as I was pers- as I was thinking about my own perception of sound, it seems very fitting because at least in LA, it's very rainy today. So I was just sitting on my porch and realizing that the difference between vision and sound with vision it's really just whatever you're looking at and the light is refracting off of specific molecules that are within the wavelengths we can perceive so it's this way for you know we can't see air we can only see a certain uh group of particles whereas with sound it's not that we're hearing the actual particles. It's that, like you said, it's the force. So we're able to perceive in a 360 degree sense what's going on around us. So if you hear rain or if you hear something crash, you're able to build up a view of reality based on the directional force of all of these molecules and atoms bumping into each other. Um, So it's just really fascinating to think about it from that sense. And I tried to look into if most organisms first developed vision or if most organisms first developed hearing. And it seems like the jury is is still out on that one. 
Um, but it is interesting yeah, totally. to me to just think about like, how does sound increase our ability to survive and how does it build up our perception of reality itself? Yeah, no, that's, that's totally, that's totally interesting. And, and, um, and I've been, that's kind of where I thought you might be going with that. But, um, yeah, sound and vision, of course, are, 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 are interesting, um, evolutionarily. It's, it's funny that we, we are able to close our eyes, but, but we can't close our ears. Right. Mm. And, um, and that that almost seems like a just sort of a an accident, like his eyeballs need to be moistened in the air hmm. to keep functioning. Um, but it's also if you look at sort of the structure of our eyes and the structure of our ears and and the way they evolved, it seems likely that you know since we have stereoscopic vision, which is kind of a kind of a um, something that predatory creatures tend to evolve so that they can. And what is that? It's like a, well, we're, we're just, we have two eyes in the front of our heads looking at the same things from a slightly different angle. So we have depth. Mm. As um, opposed to like the, those like flat fish that just see on one side or. Well, or even like a, like a, it's just funny if you look, if you look in, in, in the animal kingdom and by the way, eyes and ears both evolved many times over convergently. Um, hmm. Someone I was just reading that eyes probably evolved, you know, 40 or 50 times in, in totally different mechanisms. Um, but especially if you look at mammals, birds, you know, chameleons, um, dates, they yeah. have like two separate um, eyes that seem to act totally independent. Yeah. Well, uh, so if we just look at, at, you know, the, the vertebrates, um, land animals, high, you know, more complex animals like us, um, the, the sort of herbivores tend to have an eye on each side of their head. The, the, and the carnivores tend to have two eyes in the front of their head um, mm. because what the, you know, what the deer or the, or the mouse needs to do is to sort of be aware of its surroundings so it can run away. <laughs> and what the, you know, the, the cat or the owl need to do is um, track their prey uh, accurately and and I think that you know we so we we have this stereoscopic sort of predator vision that I think reflects on the way we um, we kind of talk about vision and sound like we talk about the gaze like it's a like it's an intentional thing that you're sort of shooting at an object that you're right. interested in um, like pay attention you like look straight at someone. Right, right. And um, whereas our auditory system is, I think, you know, feels at least like a like an older, like a like a prey, um, like a like a sense from our, our days as prey animals where, you know, it's always on. It's always on, it's on even in our sleep. And um, and it's sort of there. It's like an alarm system. It's like sounds can can very easily and readily tap into our sort of flight or flight uh flight or fight response right hmm. so, um and you know you can be you know it can startle you out of sleep into this like state of state of readiness and, right um, and that's interesting I've, i i, I yeah. remember this one study that i read which was actually a sleep study 
but they were trying to understand the sleep patterns of humans as they originally evolved. So removing the modern day city, all of, you know, all of those inputs. And so they studied this one tribe that was basically living the same way we lived when we were hunter gatherers. And they found that the older people in the tribe, especially the older, you know, grandmothers almost acted like the alarm system for the tribe. They would sl- they were very light sleepers. They would sleep less as they got later in life. And it mm-hmm. was almost like they're supposed to be sort of the alarm bell. If anything came, um, you know, they would wake up the rest of the members. So it definitely seems um, quite plausible that our sound perceptions are sort of a defensive mechanism for us. Whereas, you know, like you said, our vision is more of a predatory, you know, tracking some sort of animal in a particular way, as opposed to an herbivore, which is more just like, you know, also defensively looking in all surroundings, but not really tracking and hunting anything down in the, the same way that we do. Yeah, at least it, it feels, it certainly kind of makes, it feels, it makes an intuitive sense to me to think about it that way. And, and, and of course, cause sound, cause as you said, we can, you know, we can hear things, uh, you know, all around us. 360 degrees of directionality and we can hear things very far away in a quiet environment um, hmm. um, even things that are occluded to our vision um, so and why did some animals I mean I guess it's you know you could say evolution is the answer but why did some animals develop such different capabilities with sound compared to other animals you know, it's like, why, why is there, the, I mean, right. is it just sort of random that some animals had a strategy that was largely a vision strategy, whereas other animals are largely a sound survival strategy, and um, whereas some animals seem to have really great on, you know, on both ends, like a hawk who's able to hear, but mm-hmm. also see very far away. It probably depends yeah, I on their environment, too, like, depending on what the predator is, like, if you're in the depths of the ocean, they probably evolved some sort of sensory mechanism that was not related to sight. Instead, they had to sense their surroundings at all time mm. because the evolution is always shaped by the environment in which the animals are in. So, I mean, it could start with some sort of randomness, like you were saying, but as they're in a more stable environment, then over time they evolved to adapt to this environment so that you know depending on what the day and night structure is depending on what the mm-hmm. weather patterns are depending on who their prey or their predators are so i think there's just so much variation yeah it's involved. interesting also that i think intuitively you would think that sound moves slower through water but it actually moves faster than it does through air and it's like the more dense the material is, like it moves way faster than water through steel, for instance. Um, sure. So I wonder if that has any correlations with the capabilities of, let's say, dolphins talking to one another and all of these weird sounds like whales singing in the depths. And we really have no idea what they're saying to one another or orcas, for instance, which have a whole part of their brain that you know has emotional intelligence that humans don't have so it's i wonder how much communication might be augmented by just the the fact that lots of you know in the water it you know it conduces sound much more quickly and maybe you can communicate a lot better 
Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about evolutionary pressures and and to speculate about them. But um, you know, ultimately, we, we we do assume that that there's some that if an organism has a very sophisticated auditory system, it did evolve for some reason under some sort of evolutionary pressure. But it's also possible to have you know local maxima in evolution. So basically, like once once an organism evolves better ears than it does eyes maybe it's eye, its ears just get better and better until it's got the best ears around and that can right. give it an advantage in any environment or or you know in a in a um and it's not going to like go back and and lose its ears and evolve eyes instead or or something um, um but you know um certainly certainly there's a lot of environmental Conditions you see a lot of a lot of desert animals have really, really great hearing. Oh um, right, like the desert. I'm not fox. sure. I guess because the, you know, because the, I suppose because of the landscape, right? Because there's not a lot of mountainous terrain that's gonna that's gonna deflect or or obfuscate a, a sound wave. Um, hmm. It is know. interesting, also, just like thinking about how it's a sound wave. I think fundamentally people often think of the world as being very solid and it's like, Oh, you got solid ground, solid buildings and everything feels very immovable. But there was this one thought experiment that I thought was interesting where imagine you have a steel rod going all the way from the earth to the moon. And imagine if you push that steel rod, you know, 10 meters higher from the earth, it would actually take 18 minutes before the end that's on the side of the moon would move at all. Because basically you're just pushing the collection of, of atoms and molecules that are nearest oh. to you. And then it basically just like that wave sort of even through steel pushes and it takes a lot right. of time to get all the way to the other end. So if you think of the world in that way, really nothing is solid. Like even something like steel, it's not solid. It's just a connection, sure. a collection of mm. tightly packed atoms. Um, and so sound really allows us to perceive the world in its more gooey wave-like way. <laughs> whereas vision seems to be more of like a, you know, particular points, um, more physical than, than this like gooey wave-like world where we seem to be perceiving through sound. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. Um, and I guess you know maybe if maybe if it was possible, maybe we would have like ear flaps in this or ear lids in the same that way that we have eyelids, except there's no, you know, we don't have like our bodies don't have any material, don't produce like a non-compressible material that could actually block sound. Um, mm. so, <laughs> you know, that'd be very that'd be very hard to imagine. Um, but one way or another, we have, we do have, we are this, the, uh, the auditory system is much more open and always on and, and always gathering stimuli from the world, sort of for better or for worse, I would say, given the, the way that our acoustic world is changing. Um, right. Another question I wanted to ask you, Ezra, is about just sort of the, the way that sound helps build our perception of time. And especially, I mean, when I think about this in my personal life, 
music especially has been a way where I can be listening to something and a whole hour can pass and it feels like mm -hmm. five minutes. Or if you're at an incredible music festival or concert and you just get totally lost in the music. And the most profound experience I had was was when I was, uh, you know, I was at a yoga retreat in Bali and at the end of every class, the yogi, you know, plays just some acoustic guitar, no lyrics. And it was a really challenging class. And at the end of that class, I was in Shavasana and he was playing. And then with this, there was like a long period of silence. And then he like strummed like in a really intense part of the song. And it was like I felt time stop and my soul like pushed out of my chest. <laughs> and I just like felt like I was expanding for thousands of miles in every direction. And it only lasted for probably like a moment. But afterwards, I was just like, whoa. <laughs> uh, so like what is it about sound that lets you totally lose yourself in the moment and it warps your sense of internal time like why is it that sound is able to do something where, like this whereas our other senses don't seem to be tied into our perception of sound and reality in the same way yeah i mean that's a that's a really fascinating question um and i don't think there's a there's a very easy answer um but there's no doubt that that time you know time and sound are are very closely related i mean we talk about frequencies a lot and um and a frequency is just the inverse of a time of a duration <laughs> um hmm. so you know i mean vision so so visible light is also periodic and also has a frequency and is also made out of waves but um, they're at a much higher rate um, where we kind of that that is kind of very far from our our conscious experience of time, um, the time mm -hmm. that it takes for a for a blue light to for blue light wave to to sort of switch on and off or or to to push and pull our vision is is infinitesimal, and sound on the other hand works at a much lower frequent range of frequencies where you know, once um, there's kind of a there's kind of a continuous uh, there's kind of a continuity between the lowest frequency sounds that we can hear, the longest wavelengths, um, and something that we would perceive as actually just a just a series of like bursts or clicks hmm. um, or pulses. So, you know, something that's you know a, a twenty hertz sound so like a, a sound wave that's pushing and pulling 20 times a second 20 times a second is it, it we can sort of barely perceive it as a tone um and we can also kind of it's also at the upper limit of like what we could perceive as a rhythm so hmm. you know there's a there's a there's a total continuity between them and i think when we're listening when we're sort of in putting our engaging attentive listening and by the way there's lots of theories about different listening states uh, psychologically um, but when we put ourselves into a sort of state of attentive listening I think we're engaging a a, um, a part of our 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 brain and our psyche that's like very attentive to time um, and you know rhythmic perception um, people say well we can if, if we study sort of the the ability to discriminate uh, moments in time um, we're much more able to to discriminate between between moments if they're in a rhythmic structure. Like we can tell if this beat is 
five milliseconds out of place. Um, That's interesting. You, you know, whereas if we just heard two events, uh, you know, 10 seconds apart, we wouldn't be able to tell if, if they were 10 seconds or 10 seconds plus five milliseconds. But once you put them into a, into a periodic structure, then it sort of engages all of these, these faculties for, for um, perceiving structure and time that is related to our hearing. Right. And, and well, um, yeah. You touched on a couple of points there that I want to expand on. So one is the idea that when you're enraptured in music, um, they've actually shown through brain scans that the prefrontal cortex, which generally focuses on introspection, shuts down. So you literally do lose yourself when you are enraptured in music, just as you've, as you've said. So I think, I think that's fascinating. The other two points I wanted to touch on that you brought up is the idea of rhythm. So for instance, why do I love some songs whereas I can't stand other songs? Like I, I can't stand country music or at least most country <laughs> music. I love Johnny Cash, but most country songs I just think is stupid and it doesn't resonate with me personally. Whereas my wife loves country music. She grew up in Tennessee. Um, so like why do some rhythmic patterns resonate with me but not with my wife? And I guess to take that concept a little further, why is music such a good predictor of people getting along? I mean, colleges use this to pair roommates in dorms. Like, it seems like the rhythmic preferences are getting at some fundamental truth that is, is better described by music or better represented by music than any other indicator. Like, why is rhythm so powerful? Um... <laughs> um, hang on one <coughs> Sorry. It's all right. Um, well, it's interesting that you that you focus on rhythm in that in that question. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily, though. Certainly, it's a it's an important it's it's a fundamental aspect of music, but. Uh, but maybe more generally, yeah, you know, if you're asking why, why is music taste such a pre predictor of compatibility or, or mm. something? And, um, and, you know, I think the answer to that is maybe not so much about, about brains and, and physiology, but it's really because music is a, it, every culture has some kind of music and is usually highly developed uh, as a, as a form, cultural expression or a ritual or means of communication, like um, you know, you take country music and it's and country music has all of this kinds of signals built in that are that are that are based on cultural context and. Um, mm. So I so would, that's so you're making the argument that it's a cultural indicator to a large extent your music taste. But let's say two yeah. people grew up on a desert island, or you know, not a desert island, but let's just say two people grew up without any society, any culture. They're just, <laughs> you know, like Lord of the Flies, but they're on different islands. And then you give these people a an array of different musicians, like you give them Johnny Cash and Dead Mouse and and uh, like and Bach like and Brahms or something. yeah, whoever. And then let's say you have a hundred of these people all growing up alone on their islands 
and then you match them by whatever music they like the most. Don't you still think there would be some indicator in people who have the same preference, regardless of culture and society, would end up getting a, a, getting along better if you, let's say, put them on the same island because they both loved Bach more than any of the other options? Wow, maybe. maybe. Um, I wish we could do that experiment. <laughs> but uh, maybe we don't have to be, go... Yeah, certainly there's some... There's some there's some kind of empirical measures of things that different musics are doing differently. And maybe some of those even correspond to like universal patterns um, of maybe like probably things like how, how intense does this music sound to you is probably, or does this sound, does this sound intense or relaxed mm. is, maybe relatively universal because if I play something that's very slow and soft, it's going to be relaxing. And if I play something that's very loud and fast, it's going to be very exciting. Right. Or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, and that's, you know, that those universalities might be in speech as well. You know, it's a big topic. And, well, there's, yeah. there's one yeah. quote yeah. that, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Justin. But, so but yes, think, go, you go ahead, Ezra, you finish. Well, but I, I think that's that even even those elements are kind of more, maybe more relative than than we give them credit for. Um, you know, especially when you we, we don't even maybe perceive the same dimensions of expression uh, based on our cultural context. Um, if you grow up speaking a tonal language, like like Mandarin, um, it, you don't have you don't associate inflection and tonality with emotive content because because mm. it's part of the it's part of the semantic content of the language and emotion is expressed through other means through that's through, why there's no um, chinese adele right <laughs> probably i mean um and you know if you likewise if you in in sort of classical korean or japanese music has a very different range of tempos that are expressed like it's like in in western music and and african music uh probably um the the sort of basic um the basic sort of reference point for tempo is the heartbeat and, uh, and you know that... we're kind of in this in this sort of 40 bpm to 180 bpm range which is kind of you know that's Half fascinating. As fast as a heartbeat, or or three times as fast as a heartbeat, but it's in this sort of range. Hmm. Whereas in uh, Guangzhou or other like uh, class or um, classical Japanese music, the 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 sort of tempo reference point is the breath, and um, you have pulses that are several seconds apart. That is sort of the main pulse. And I, um, I wonder if do you think that the reason that people tend to like slower music more is because they, the rhythm is more comforting because it's more similar to the rhythm of your heartbeat or of your breath. Because for instance, there have been some studies shown that for instance, more drinks are sold in bars when slow tempo music is being played. Um, another study found that consumers spend 38% more time in the grocery store when background music is slow. Uh, so it does seem to, and then, you know, there was another study that found that 
the, apparently the most dangerous song to listen to while driving is Richard Va- Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyrie because people will just start speeding in their cars and they'll start <laughs> feeling frantic and wow. you know maybe you could have some like really angry hip hop music would be even worse than 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 Wagner <laughs> but um, I do wonder if the reason that people like that sound has such a, such a deep uh, resonance within people and especially slow sounds is because maybe it almost makes us feel like we're back in the womb or it's like we feel our heartbeat we feel the, the uh, you know the rhythm of our breath or maybe of our mother's heartbeat or or something really fundamental it's absolutely true that um yeah that that certain tempos that are close to the sort of median heart rate are more um more I wouldn't even say relaxing, but but uh, more trance-inducing um, for sure. Mm. So, and even like in in electronic music, where or you know in dance music, where where BPM is like such a sort of carefully right. <laughs> carefully considered element of the music, you know, 120 BPM is is trance. It's like yeah, it's like yeah. chill trance and and <laughs> or or deep house or whatever. Or, right, and, and it. It's very. It's a very clear preference for, you know, this uh, doom, 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 doom tempo. That is, you know, that is um, a just an. an uh, you could put it. You could say it's an octave above the the heart rate, the, the resting heart rate. Or and yeah. if, and then if they, and it's not a and and there's some feedback when someone's listening to dance music. If the if the DJ, you know, gradually modulates modulates the uh the tempo upward they can speed up everyone's heart rate actually um and and yeah that's that's very important i think but but i get just to go back to my earlier point when you when you take a it's very interesting to look at people's reaction to other musical traditions uh whether it's whether we're talking about harmony intonation or or tempo or rhythm um if you really can, you know, if you listen to classical Korean music or classical Japanese music, um, it almost seems like it doesn't have a tempo or it doesn't have a rhythm. But it's just that the rhythm is is this breathing rate is the, mm. where the pulse is. And then there's all this these sort of um, yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking of like when you're getting acupuncture of, and there's like yeah. the heat lamp and the <laughs> nice very, peaceful music and. <laughs> yeah, there's like some very slow shamisen music or something playing mm. in the background, and and that is um, but from within that tradition, you could you can perceive a lot of different different modulations of it and different um, expressions of different dramatic or emotional states, um, and that maybe to 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 someone from from a Western tradition, they all sound just slow. <laughs> right. Um, because the expression is happening in some other axis, like like the the way that each note is ornamented, or or mm. the uh, the the how big the the harmonic intervals are, or the kinds of yeah the kinds of figures that are played sort of around each beat. Um, yeah, I read, so I think I, all of that is very interesting. Uh, yeah, I read this. Uh, in music. I read this Medium article that was talking about the same sort of thing where they said that by modulating the rhythm or the BPM of a song, especially within the same song, you can actually modulate someone's perception of time. 
So the example this writer used was uh, Schubert's string quintet in C major. And oh, yeah. he shows that in, in within this song, it'll start off with a rhythm that you expect is going to go on, but then the note will just be drawn out for longer than you expect, and then it'll go faster than you expect. And so it's like you're flying through the cosmos while you're listening to this song because it really is modulating your perception of time and space and everything. And I love this. I love this one quote, which I think gets to the core of a lot of what we've talked about, which is an Aldous Huxley quote. And he said that after science, that which comes nearest to expressing the inexpressible is music. So for whatever reason, it does seem like music has this uh, very cosmic quality to it that can't be expressed better by anything other than science, according to Huxley. Kind of like the universal truth truth that you were talking about a little bit ago yeah. that music might be getting to. Cause, so what I was going to say earlier is kind of to that point, too. It, so the one of the fields that kind of gets to universal truths more than um, a lot of others is like mathematics, I think, personally. I just like math. Um, but I saw this video on a channel called Three Blue, One Brown called Mm -hmm. music and measure theory and Mm -hmm. basically he was talking about how when you when you have two notes together let's say one is at 500 hertz one is at a thousand hertz or something Mm -hmm. like that then then the the fraction between those two is one half or two over one depending on uh where you where you put it in the fraction but Mm -hmm. the that is supposedly a beautiful sound to humans because it's a beautiful fraction. Like it's, it's a cleaner Mm -hmm. fraction than something like 313 over 1,876, you know, something like that. So, so it has this clean mathematical representation. And what he was saying is the reason for this is when you think of sound as waves in these two different notes going together, they overlap more frequently and in a more like beautiful and consistent pattern than like an unclean fraction for example Hmm. um sure so so what you're describing is sorry you go ahead well you're what you're describing is the theory of of just intonation which is a very ancient theory going back to pythagoras and um and is definitely you know it comes from physics Hmm. and it's quite you know in to at least some extent that's how our ears work to do frequency discrimination is to is to um um keep track of the beating frequencies between between components of a sound frequency components of a sound and um but kind of what's interesting and this is one of the things i was referring to when i say that 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 uh, tuning intonation is a is culturally defined uh, is that um, so? So an interesting thing is that, you know, I, I I'm a musician. I went to conservatory and stuff, and, and trained in the classical tradition, uh, Western European tra- classical tradition. And people ask me a lot if I have perfect pitch, right? Which means, can I listen to say a piano key and and say whether it's out of tune? And um, that the idea of perfect pitch is interesting because it's totally arbitrary. Um, not only the bass reference pitch, but this the the idea that um, 
two intervals are in tune or out of tune. Um, we use a system in Western European music theory. We use a tuning system called equal temperament, which is uh, only a couple hundred years old. Um, it was created not, uh, under pressures of industrialization, so building instruments um, in mass, and also to sort of aesthetic pressures to be able to modulate to a bunch of different unrelated keys within the same piece. Um, and equal temperament is funny because it has no natural it has no um, natural number ratios between between keys actually. Um, the distance between each semitone in in twelve tone equal temperament is twelfth root of two, which is an irrational number. Right. So, but isn't it close to like it's very close to a rational fraction? Some that, of the some of the some of the de degrees of the chromatic scale are closer than others. Okay. Um, the fifth in particular is pretty far. Is pretty far. The okay. third is pretty far, and um, it's very funny because in if you if you play a, a string instrument, an unfretted string instrument like the violin, um, right. you you use beating frequencies to tune the to, to tune yourself. There's no other reference, and mm. so when you tune the distance between two strings, you're tuning them until they are in a perfect fifth, a perfect just intoned fifth, of a three to two ratio. Um, so you're never actually in tune with the piano, and you're always kind of balancing between these two different tuning system pressures. And actually, the the um, evolution of and just and the uh, um, ubiquity of um, equal temperament um, coincided with the invention of like heavy vibrato, <laughs> as mm. a, which is you know when you in in a classical violin performance you, you yeah <laughs> and I think that's because uh, it kind of covers the fact that uh, that you're using your everyone's on a different tuning system. Well, I wonder if uh, the music that resonates most with humans is the music that moves at a similar pace of life as the pace of life for humans and this this is uh it's similar to so there's this book called scaling which is mm -hmm. about how you can basically predict the lifespan of any organism just by knowing some fundamental things about it so for instance a human mm -hmm. is allocated i forget what the number is but let's say a million heartbeats throughout our life Whereas a mouse mm -hmm. is allocated the same number of heartbeats, but they're beating at such a rapid pace that they live for much shorter. So I wonder if mice may prefer music that moves at a faster BPM compared to humans, <laughs> and maybe whales prefer. Pitch. Yeah, maybe yeah. whales prefer a much sl even slower music. Uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever done research on that, but it, it does seem like people or organisms tend to like the music that moves along at a pace that resonates with them based on their heartbeat, their breath rate, all of those sorts of things. Have you ever seen an animal react to like a beautiful classical song? Like yeah. My dogs, my dogs will just like <laughs> go to sleep or they'll just calm down immediately right when they, right when they start hearing a beautiful song. It's really yeah. cool to see. But like, or parrots, I mean, parrots do this all the time, but now that I think about it, it does seem like 
they tend to like more uppity music like the beach boys or like just not quite as slow but i I mean i don't know i haven't done any research or seen any research papers on it there could be like a multifaceted reason for this too like it could have something to do with the the dominance of like whatever frequency your brain waves are working at like there's there's a lot of different things that could you know formulate what you were just talking about doesn't necessarily have to be pace of life it could you know be the heartbeat the breath like Ezra was talking about or it could be the brainwave patterns Mm. maybe you know because when you I mean this is something that I talked about I forgot which episode we talked about this but they did that there's that research study with people that listen to white noise when they sleep and they kind of oscillate the volume of this white noise oh, to right. to kind of the delta brainwave frequency, which is the deep uh, sleep frequency. And it the uh, patients or the um, the people in the study actually went into delta deep sleep way quicker and longer than the uh, control which you know didn't have this Mm. oscillation or maybe not even white noise Mm. I need to look at the Mm -hmm. details Um, yeah a lot of yeah white some um, there's a lot of yeah colors of noise are interesting uh, that way like pink noise is actually um, pretty effective in relaxation Um, pink noise has a frequency response of one over uh where the amplitude is inversely proportional to the frequency, and that's a very common property um, of natural natural noise processes, actually. Mm. And then another one that 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 is common in nature is brown noise, which is where it's yep. the which is the limit of of a random walk. Yeah, uh, I listen to that every single spectrum. night. Oh, really? You go yeah. for the brown noise? Yeah, I go I go brown noise, and like <laughs> I have a. I have a white noise app and it says how long I've played, you know, each noise. I think brown noise is at like 380 days of playing this noise. So I've been doing it for a few years. And it, I mean, That's I feel like I sleep really well. Um, yeah, it's almost hard to sleep without it because Dude, it yeah, that's what I was gonna say. The they, they said that when you're raising a baby, you have to be really careful about always playing mm-hmm. music when it goes to sleep. Because then when it grows up and is an adult, it'll, like, freak out if it doesn't have music around. Uh-huh. So I think the conditioning is key. Um, but you did bring up one thing, uh, Ezra, that I want to touch on briefly, which is seeing colors. and Or no, sorry, seeing sounds and hearing colors. Synesthesia. Or also people with ASMR. People who tend to have their wires crossed with their perceptions. So what's going on inside the brain of someone who is able to hear colors or see sounds yeah that's a great question i don't i don't know that i don't know much about it honestly and and i don't i don't know how much understanding there is neurologically of what's Mm. happening there um i certainly i find it interesting that there's certain composers in history who've who've uh experienced this so strongly that they developed like like uh, a, a whole system of composition around it wow. um, Scriabin is a was a example um famous example um you know and have like very very definite um 
and I've worked with musicians who, who have this also have like very strong and definite associations of different keys. It's usually it's usually about key, like the fundamental uh, pitch of the of the song of the harmonic structure of the song or whatever, um, and have a very strong association between key and color. Um, hmm. But I've never personally experienced it. I don't think. Yeah, um, I haven't either. And and it seems to be definitely definitely something innate um, and not and not just a, a training thing. Mm. Um, so I think there's something going on in the brain doing that, and I don't, I'm not aware of any like uh, convincing explanation for it mechanically. That's yeah. more specific than that. There's a couple of interesting case studies related to this, not necessarily synesthesia, like seeing colors from sound, but there are people that can like build up their well and organisms, but people that mm. can build up their. Um, a view of reality almost like they're seeing when they're blind so like there's oh, the yeah. famous case of the batman who clicks similar to a bat um and the oh, batman's just right. his nickname and he he'll click and he'll kind of get this picture of reality like the spatial picture around him which is something that's hard to do you know if you're blind obviously but he acts similar to a bat where he clicks and then he can hear all of the um, different mm. refractions and um, reflections of the sound coming back, coming off of different objects. Must I be just annoying that really to be that guy's colleague. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so humans can definitely develop uh, echolocation to a pretty good degree. There's a, there's a really fascinating book that I like. It's, it's, it's a short book um, called Touching the Rock by John Hall, which is, which is about... Um, the experience of being blind um and you know but there's a particular passage where he describes you know rain the sort of as this, hmm. this magical thing and, and this this blessing because it because it kind of coats the whole world in sound and makes right. it perceivable to him um, well there's that one scene in the daredevil movie yeah. where he can fully see someone because of the rain and um my my dad actually um, worked with the work, did quite a bit of work with the School for the Blind in San Francisco in the in the '60s and uh, developing devices. Um, one device I I was I just came across in the in the basement was this. Um, it's like an optical rangefinder, but the output is is an is an oscillator. Um, so it's a it's like a sine wave oscillator that increases in pitch when when something is close to the sensor oh. and the sensor is this beam that wow. you can that you can sweep around so if some you know if something if you ha uh, so if you sweep it um and there's like a, a wall with maybe a maybe a couch in front of it and you sweep the beam across the wall it'll go like you know and, and, and then if you sweep it all around it's this it's this more complicated structure of pitches it's isn't that like, kind of like how like how radar and, works yeah i mean it's it's echo it's it's a it's a very directional kind of echolocation um i mean and and apparently if someone when someone kind of works with this um device they can really become quite it can become quite effective as a means to to perceive 
the objects around you and the space around you um, hmm. with a, a surprisingly small amount of training, actually, especially for, for blind people who are, who are, you know, very, tend to have, you know, very excellent pitch memory and, and, you know, kind of have to have to have a pretty good, pretty good uh, ability to, to map sounds to, to events and to hmm. remember their, you know, associate them. Um, I bet it helps to have all the feedback too. Like that, that always makes learning easier when you have constant feedback of, you know, what is this pitch now? And then you can kind of learn really quickly what each of these pitches means when you just kind of go and test out your environment. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to start moving in the direction of future scenarios. So mm. we've talked a lot about sound as a phenomenon and music and perceptions and all of that. How have things changed up until now and how might they continue to change in the future? So, for instance, is the world noisier now than it used to be? Are people's levels of hearing worse than they used to be? Um, how are you, you know, how, how much better has sound technology, uh, both emitting sound and perceiving sound, how much better has that gotten, you know, over the last however many years? So Ezra, what's your sense on how sound technology and just noise in general has progressed over the years and what's it looking like directionarily for the future? Um, well, wow, I wish I'd done more homework. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, there's also music as the other phenomenon, like, you know, there's AI composers and all that kind of stuff. But I guess first, let's just well, talk about, yeah, you can go ahead. The world is noisier and has, has been continually getting noisier for, for a long time. Um, um, there's, a, there's actually a whole field called acoustic ecology um, or ecoacoustics, um, hmm. which studies kind of a couple, a couple of things under this umbrella. One is, one is the, the sort of effect of, of the, the soundscape, the sound environment on people. And, and then the other way around is, is like the way people are impacting the eco uh, different ecologies through sound. Like noise um, pollution. Yeah. So noise, and this was noise pollution is, is sort of the, one of the, yeah, it's the it's the main the main element to this, and and this is a this is a um, in particular in particular there's something called the World Soundscape Project, which was started in the '60s uh, by Canadians um, because who were who were sort of trying to trying to document the uh, um, the changes in the soundscape and in mm. in levels of noise pollution. Um, yeah, there's so, been a couple I, apps I, I that have come have out. Any, yeah, I saw a lot. Of, for example, um, well, um, so I wish I had more numbers at the tip of my fingers, but I I don't. And um, and I'm but I'm sure the numbers are going up. As far right, as the, right. Sort of, uh, you know, SPL levels. Um, and and how is sound level. being used nowadays? differently than how it has been used in the past. So for instance, I, I remember you were telling me about in San Francisco that they're now weaponizing sound as a way of getting homeless people not to sleep in front of their stores. 
um, you know, what are some ways that sound is being used nowadays that, you know, are pretty different from the ways it's been used in the past? Oh, well, yeah. Um, I mean, as or like far, the so Cuba incident, like, for instance, also. What? What's that? I said also, you know, not only San Francisco, but also weaponizing sound like what we saw with the consulates in, in Cuba who had very right. detrimental health effects as a result of a sonic weapon. So this stuff is all very new. Yes. Well, or it well, seems I mean, new to me. Maybe it's not. Yeah, the, I mean the weaponization of of sound is is definitely has a has a weird history, <laughs> especially in the US. The US has been sort of a leader. Um, but, you know, I, I mean famously, you know, we used um, so there's kind of so yeah there's there's a there's a number of kinds of acoustic weapons and um, in the audible range of sound you have um, a whole system of a whole area of, of devices and and practices around acoustic deterrence and uh, or acoustic harassment is another word for it mm-hmm. um, a lot of this is used on wildlife for example in in um, in um, aquaculture fish farms they'll they put sonic um, emitters to drive away dolphins which are which are predators um, and oh, so wow. there's all this deliberate deliberate saturation of uh, introduction of, of sort of harmful sounds into the into the aquatic ecosystem that I think is pretty uh, disturbing right um, on the human level um, a lot of acoustic weapons have been psychological in nature um, you know, famously in Vietnam and like Apocalypse Now, and where there, there was a project called Operation Wandering Soul, which was um, broadcasting the the voices of of dead Viet Cong soldiers to um, to try to make people think that that they were they were being ghosted by them. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, and and you know this kind of thing, and and uh, uh, and was was it the uh, um with Noriega, the the sort of um, sorry, hang on, um, let me look. Let's edit this out. Yeah, well, just in the meantime, um, we should talk about the attack in Cuba. So what happened there is that there yeah. were diplomats at the Hotel Nacional where I've been. Um, only actually like a week and a half before this happened, so it kind of freaked me out when I heard about all this. But basically, we now have the recordings. We can hear what the people in the hotel rooms of the Hotel Nacional heard. And basically, there are these high-pitched frequencies that were almost inaudible, although they could faintly hear them. And it gave them nausea. It gave them permanent hearing loss. It gave them uh, you know, really terrible headaches and migraines. And uh, that's part of the reason why we pulled out our diplomats. And now it seems to be a very premeditated move on the part of Russia to make sure that the U.S. and Cuba never get too close together, um, you know, because that's still yeah. an instrumental country for Russia's purposes. But I, but it, makes, it's scary, so I um, wonder yeah. where this could go. Like, that's sort of the first big headline. Where, where could this go from here? Yeah, well, so so this was, yeah, and it was, um, sort of go, go back, yeah. <laughs> hmm. So yeah, it was um, Manuel Noriega who was sort of 
the the U.S. you know played uh, heavy metal at the at the Panama City Embassy for for a week or something at 110 SPL, uh, so very damaging volumes um, until he surrendered. That that was a very famous application of acoustic wow. violence. Um, also in places like the Waco uh, Waco Texas siege, um, they they used tactics like that. Um, and this, yeah. So in 2018, there are a couple of these these uh, things in the news. One in China, right before before the Cuba um, incident, and and there was a lot of speculation about about ultrasonic weapons in those cases. One one theory. Um, that I thought was pretty compelling was that actually it was it was a form of ultrasonic surveillance, kind of like radar, um, that kind of had this unexpected side effect. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, these all these symptoms that people reported are consistent with um, with the effects of ultrasound. What what's called a um, so these are very very high frequencies of sound. And when the, when they're you know um, uh, well above uh, twenty thousand hertz, so so beyond what's considered the range of, of possible human hearing, and when you when you use sounds like that at very high energies, you have an effect called a, a ultrasonic cav- a cavitation effect, which is a fancy physics word for uh, forming bubbles. In uh, in the media in the in the transmission medium of oh, a compression wow. wave, so Yikes. and you know we we actually use ultrasonic cavitation, and it's used in aesthetic medicine to break up fat <laughs> fat cells to like basically blow them up, and oh, um, also tumor cells, um, and so you can imagine this has a pretty horrible effect on on your brain tissue uh, when right. you get an ultrasonic a high energy ultrasonic beam. Pointed at your head. Is there um, anything you could do to pr- protect yourself? Could you wear like a metal helmet or something? <laughs> yeah, you could. You could. Yeah, there could be a, not a metal one because, as you pointed out, um, you oh, know, it conducts an excellent, right, right, excellent medium. So, what would what um, would, let's say you're in the Hotel Nacional on that night? What what would you do to protect yourself? Probably like you know some some sort of diffusive medium like a like a styrofoam or something yeah like like star well styrofoam is is kind of weirdly transmissive also but maybe just like like toilet paper or <laughs> or, or cotton or something um, okay uh, uh, or like egg crates or something yeah <laughs> um and i don't know i don't know how 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 well diffuse like diff- media uh, diffuser mediums that work in the acoustic range work in the ultra ultrasound range i'm not i'm not hmm. sure um yeah because it's interesting because like for instance out. people use dog whistles all the time to train their dogs right. humans can't hear them dogs can but that doesn't cause the same sort of adverse health effects as sonic weapons so is it really just like the the energy level of sounds at that frequency that makes it yeah damaging? i think these these ultrasound weapons that that can induce cavitation in human tissue are 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 extremely dangerous and scary. Um, there's more. There's a whole other a whole other class of acoustic weapons or deterrence devices that use infrasound, so sound that's too low to hear, basically pulses, and that that can kind of affect your 
digestive tract and, and stuff and make just make you very uncomfortable and nauseous. Wow. And, and they use these um, sometimes on like shooting ranges, actually, or act, or uh, training, military training uh, camps. They'll, they'll use infrasound to make sure no one is, no one, everyone, people stay out of the, the firing range while it's being used. And, and, huh. and it's also, you know, they've been deployed in Iraq also to disperse crowds that uh, they suspect of, of there being a suicide bomber in, or in the crowd, they'll use these long-range infrared, uh, sorry, long-range infrasound um, pulses to, to, to disperse people. Um, but yeah, oh, this, so what you, what you referred to, Matt, um, uh, is this story. So like about a year ago, I was in San Francisco on a business trip so i was staying in a hotel in the financial district and it was kind of a small old hotel um where you know and i had like um i had the window open and uh, at night and i could hear this very uncomfortable very very high-pitched sound um someone at the at the range of at the range of audibility as far as frequency but i could tell it was coming from a, a ways away and it must have been very loud hmm. um and and I went out and started just walking around, um, trying to find out what what this thing was. And I and I found this this uh, metal cage, metal box, like a like a steel mesh cage box, mounted um, in the like in a in a shop doorway, hmm. um, like a where a hobo would typically sleep doorway where like a homeless person might like to sleep. Right. Um, had this right. had this metal metal cage in it that was emitting a, a horribly loud sound at a at a frequency that I could almost not quite hear consciously, but I could but it was, you know, giving me a headache. God, that's so terrible. Dizzy. And 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 then I went and and you know, I looked I I, I Googled it a little bit and I couldn't find anything in the local news about this. Um, although there were references to other acoustic deterrents for, for homeless people that, that different actors in the city have, have been trying, um, like playing music, playing like loud rock music all night in front of the Billy Graham Auditorium, um, hmm. and people complain and they stop doing that. But I didn't find anything about this ultrasound thing until actually just the other day. I um, I searched for stuff that looks like it and I found I found out that it's this device called the mosquito that is a c commercial <laughs> device that that people the the idea is that um is that it produces sounds that only young people can hear oh <laughs> only, yeah you know if and um and and that it'll it's it's sold to like School districts. I mean, it's crazy to to try oh, to wow. and they'll install them to try to discourage loitering. Wow. Um, and and they're they're being used a lot in England. Um, but, but there's apps yeah, in schools these... that I mean, on the less detrimental side, there's apps where kids will play this because the teacher can't hear it, and so everyone oh, will be huh. laughing, and the teacher will oh, just be funny. like, "What? What's so funny? <laughs> he can't hear it." But this is much more sinister, where you're actually weaponizing. It's very sound. bad. I mean. I mean, it, it's an acoustic poison is kind of how I thought of it. And and um, and I looked at the specs for this thing, and it's producing sound at 106 decibels, SPL, which is, wow. you know, 
um, which def which causes permanent hearing loss after one minute of exposure, actually. Wow. So this is a very, very, um, this is a very bad thing to be doing, especially to young people. I mean, think about infants and babies that have absolutely no protection against these. Things. Oh, because, man. You know, you're just damaging them right out of the gate. And, um, and these things have been banned in Germany, which has, um, you know, you know, and in that, that very interesting thing to read the report on the German um, safety committee that that was instrumental in banning these things because they they're like yes you know there's no there's absolutely no scientific doubt that this causes permanent loss and you know right. there's all these all these effects that are non-conscious you know even though if you, you can't hear the frequency it's still going to be causing you know yeah. dizziness like it'll be just messing with your inner ear Ooh, we got to get this um, banned in the U.S. it's crazy that they're yeah. not banned. I mean, and it's like big, it's like when yeah. you have spikes so that a pigeon can't land on the awning and poop on people. But if just by seeing being in the vicinity of the spikes, you got spiked. That's like basically right. what's going on. <laughs> right. And uh, and there's a there is a very active and vocal movement right now to get them banned in England. As well. OK, good. That's good. But yeah, I found that very disturbing. Are there so given all of this discussion about weapons and maybe even healing mechanisms with mm. with sound, is there any way that we can theoretically, even if it's not currently possible, but any way that we could target specific parts of the body? So instead of having to like isolate the sound spatially on your body maybe you can still have like a full mm. like be exposed to sound overall like your whole body is exposed but only a certain part of your body is damaged because you were kind of saying mm. that the the infrasound can affect your digestion so does that mm -hmm. mean that it doesn't affect other parts like certain wavelengths or certain um, frequencies affect certain parts of your body Probably. I don't, I mean, I mean, um, the, the higher the frequency of a sound wave, the more directional it can be. It's one thing. Mm -hmm. So, so these ultrasound things, which they do use in, in, again, in, in to break up fat in aesthetic medicine. Right. Weird, I've, I've also, heard they also use it to like, they can now dislodge a kidney stone yeah, by shooting. Absolutely. So they, yeah. So they use it for they use uh, acoustic cavitation on kidney stones and tumors as well in more sort of serious applications and that's and they're able to do that because an ultrasound beam is highly directional hmm. it can be aimed, aimed very precisely and that's why that's what enables them to build also these these weird ultrasound surveillance <laughs> where they can hmm. sort of like read someone's lips with it it's that you know it's that precise. But they can wow. also like bounce it around a corner, right? Or, you know, well, bounce I've, it into a room and sort of see who's in the room, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I read that and, this and, one. And there's, yeah, sorry. Uh, I was just saying in the in the same way. Like I read that this one airline was experimenting with having sound that just goes directly into your ear from the side, so you don't have to put on any headphones. You just sit in your seat and like adjust where it is, and then it just gets beamed into your ear, but no one else can hear it because it's like so precisely uh, directionalized. Oh yeah, so that's that could lead into the tech questions, I think. Because, um, uh, so I was just at the Consumer Electronics Show, this you know big international consumer tech, tech 
exposition and trade show in Las Vegas, of all places. Talk about weird acoustic <laughs> environments. Um, questionable uses of sound. Um, but, um, you know, audio is a very big deal right now, um, in particular. Um, and one of the, one of the, big audio tech uh, technologies that's that's taking off is sound, is sound field manipulation. So people are getting better and better at creating directed sound without without headphones. Um, so I think we'll be seeing so a lot of these round the neck devices. They're like personal sound field emitters that um, mm. where instead of wearing headphones, you wear this this sort of a a loop around your neck that has these these emitters that that supposedly only you can hear, although hmm. I found it to be a little iffy. Um, <laughs> but uh, and and that so you have this like personal um, this you can be you can have this personal sound um, and also have your ears open to the world, which is much more hmm. comfortable. Um, hmm. And um, there is some I, one thing I did see that was quite amazing. Sony, by the way, is 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 uh, doing a lot of this sound field stuff, and they had a quite amazing system for um, uh, inducing uh, surround sound, um, pretty directed, 360 degree directional sound from a, a single speaker in the room. Oh wow! Um, or awesome. array of speakers. That was that was really quite impressive. Um, so that is one one area where where we've we've had a lot of advances. Well, we've really really in the last like twenty years, people have been getting pretty good at this stuff in a research context. Um, but it's now making it to the consumer electronics. Um, wow. Right. Well, that's awesome. So at this point, we've touched on a lot of good sound applications, like what you just discussed um, with dislodging tumors and creating surround sound. We've also talked about some really damaging applications like sonic weapons. I think we should take a quick break now and then let's get into the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenarios. All right, let's get into the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So Ezra, in your mind, what is the worst case scenario for the future of sound? Well, well, I think I think I saw a glimpse of it in Las Vegas, where where there's like <laughs> every every um you know where where no thought and no respect is given to the acoustic health of the environment or of the people in it, mm. and sound is being deployed as base, you know a behavior manipulation mechanism whether it's through you know pop music that's supposed to make you um put you in a different state of mind or, or entice you in in this like very basic way or or these the sort of pings and 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 the sounds of like slot machines or or in our more more universal sort of digital life, the sounds of, of uh, acoustic UI cues telling you you've got a text, you've got an email, you've got, you've, you know, giving this, tapping into that, that 
um, low-level auditory mechanism that 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 responds with with hormonal changes to 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 sounds. Hmm. Um, you know, I think music is 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 taking a lot of weird directions right now with the with the way people experience music um, as a kind of a kind of uh, a functional thing like a, a stream of stimulus that that is supposed to sort of modulate your state right. of mind. you put on spotify you put on a playlist to, that tells you to feel this certain way you put on the deep um, focus spotify playlist that's specific for you and this background right. and you have no relation to the artist it's just about getting you in a certain type of rhythm or mindset right i mean it which and it's interesting and it's you know it's kind of fine in a lot of ways but but it and it disregards a lot of uses of music that are mm. crucial to to me as a as a musician i think um you know there's there's the reason everyone develops musical traditions is that it's is not because not to put you in a in the right state of mind or something but because it's a, a ritual it's a it's a mode of communication of community building um mm. and the act of listening is is just as important as the act of creating sound to to have for for music to to function. Um, That's and, I've I've heard this quote that says that the sound of of rain or raindrops needs no explanation. So just like yeah. raindrops, any great piece of music, it's not going to be like oh this is your focus music or this is your party music or it needs no explanation. You can't express like that's why all the great uh, classical compositions they're not you know they they're it's just that's why they don't have typically have a name for them like um, you know it's it's typically just concerto and C minor or C major because how can you express that which is inexpressible? Yeah. Um. So. So I, I kind of fear for the future of music in that way, in, in that it sort of becomes, you know, we, we don't have, mu instead of having music, we have Muzak, and that's like there to soothe people or excite them for a, for a, for a specific function. Mm. And on the, on the sort of broader, like acoustic level, I'm, I'm afraid that the world is getting noisier and noisier. And um, especially with the advent of voice, uh, voice interface where it's just you, you know every device is going to start talking to you and chattering at you um, right I wonder if if there it would be possible one day to have some sort of built-in noise blocking I don't know if it would be hardware or what but it does seem really useful like how you said at the beginning of this episode how we can close our eyes but we can't close our ears it would yeah. be cool if at some way in the future you did have some way of just totally deciding what sounds come into your field and what sounds don't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, earmuffs work fine, but, you know, in some, to some <laughs> degree, earplugs work fine. But a big, a big, um, another big element of development at CES area is active noise cancellation, of course, which mm. is... Um, which basically means that you have you have headphones with a little microphone next to the next to the speaker, and um, whatever is coming into the microphone is like inverted and played back, so it cancels out. Right. Uh, 
By the um, way, I've I've wondered I've always wondered about how noise cancellation actually works, and I get that it's the inverse yeah. of the wave, so it cancels it out. But the thing yeah. I've always wondered is, can that still damage your hearing? Because even if you can't perceive it, aren't you still taking in these this force of sound? And like, let's say you go, you live twenty years with lots of noise, but it's always being canceled by an inverted wave versus 20 years with just no noise at all. Wouldn't the former person have worse hearing after that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm, I would like to see more research on this. Um, but I think that, uh, what, what ANC does is cer it certainly makes things perceptually quieter and less distracting. But it's kind of, but it's like camouflage, mm. and it's not. It's definitely not perfect. And when I use it, which I don't, I don't use it habitually. But when I when I go and try it, um, you know, it's like okay, sure, I can't hear that sound anymore. But I I can hear this this background of like static right. That's, it's like that's putting a seashell to your ear or something. It has that like whooshy kind of like you know something's there, but you can't really hear it. And I know that my auditory system is being engaged by this, and it's not. And I don't find it re a relaxing experience. I find it kind of an unnerving, uncanny experience. That, hmm. and and I think it's like, and my brain and limbic system is still in like a state of like heightened attention that you I would it would be in if I was like in traffic or something. You know, it's like right. still trying to react to these stimuli, but it can't but the stimuli have been attenuated so that I to the degree that I can't tell what they are anymore. So for me, uh, when, and I wear hear, hearing protection a lot. Um, I just wear earplugs, you know, hmm. the, be, the, the more high quality, the better, but, but to speak to like the, the, the scary future is I think it's definitely, I can definitely see this, this future and it kind of exists already in the cities and American cities where, you know, there's music being piped at you from everywhere, but it's not really music. It's not like a, per it's not, you're not having a musical experience. Um, and there's, there's noise everywhere. There's um, beeps and boops every and alarms mm -hmm. everywhere. And a few people, the sort of the people who can, who can afford to develop and acquire the technology are wearing ANC headphones, really good ANC headphones everywhere they go. And everyone else is just going deaf, right? Basically. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Okay, Justin, what's your worst case future scenario? So, I would echo a lot of what Ezra said. Uh, my focus was most on the environment, and like the natural environment. Um, so, for all of the organisms, I mean, humans are also a byproduct of this. Are they're they're part of the um, organisms being damaged, but I just I hate when I see these big loud roads being constructed, and it's obviously just the noise of the cars are damaging, and no one cares really about the noise of cars. It's just one extra thing that's adding noise to the environment, um, and it's it's just kind of unnerving to see this. I like I recently listened to a TED talk about how the diversity of noise in ecosystems is decreasing, which is really interesting to me. And uh, Ezra, you might have a couple of things to say about this. 
is like I understand rainforests to be extremely noisy places. So all of the different organisms in there are making their own noises, to, whether it's for mating or something else. Um, but I just see this increase in artificial noise that's damaging the ecosystems all over mm. the world. Because, I mean, there's, there's a lot of variation in um, the natural ecosystem, but everything, all the organisms are adapted to handle it, whereas this new noise that humans are creating, uh, the organisms are not adapted to handle the noise. So, like, bats are really struggling. Anything that has some sort of dependence on sound, they're struggling. Hmm. I think frogs use sound to find their mates at night. Like, when you hear crickets, like, they're also using sound to find mates at night. So just think, there's these these things that people don't think about, like sound, that affect and damage the environment. And I think it's going to be one of the last things that get that gets figured out, because a lot of people just kind of forget about it. They think about the more explicit pollution, like CO2 levels or plastics or something like that. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's just... I'm just really worried about the noise pollution, and I think in the worst-case scenario, we don't really care until it's too late and um, that all the ecosystems are fully damaged. And you know, and then a lot of what Ezra was saying as well, with people being damaged by all the sounds and yeah. you know all the all the weapons that are being used, especially in the aquatic environments. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically absolutely. I mean. Um, I totally agree, and 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 the the effect of sound on the ecology is 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 one of these things where we're I I feel like we're destroying something before we even understand what it is. Like, and and especially in aquatic environments, um, not just with this deterrent stuff, but for example, with seismic blasting being a big um, right as part of part of offshore mining and drilling. That of course our current. Uh, uh, U.S. administration is is uh, yeah, pushing gas on, um, you know that is that that is extremely damaging to ocean life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you guys encapsulated the worst case pretty well. So the only thing I'll add to it is the word that really struck out to me, or that struck me that Ezra you were talking about is behavioral manipulation. Because especially as a marketer, I can see that getting more and more prominent as as uh, as we get more data around what sounds cause people to act in certain ways. And there's going to be more unintended sound regardless anyways. I mean, we talked about in the future of cities that we're going to have 10 billion people very soon. Uh, we're growing at a rate of we basically need a new million person city like every week. I mean, we're just growing so rapidly. So if you think about all the construction, all of the flights, all of the driving, everything else that goes along with human life, our, our unintended sounds are going to increase. Um, and then if on top of that, we have intended sounds increasing, whether it's through sonic weapons or through behavioral manipulation, almost like virtue signaling, but through sounds to get certain types of people in your store and indicate certain things i could see the worst case just being a, like you said ezra a very noisy world where most people are exposed to so much sound that they go deaf 
before they're even, you know, fully, you know, before they're even in their 30s or 40s, maybe. Um, you know, we're already seeing people getting going, uh, losing their hearing younger and younger. So now I'd like to turn it and talk about the best case scenario. So Ezra, in your mind, what's the best case future look like for the future of sound? Best case scenario. Um, well, huh. <laughs> I think we're seeing a lot of, a lot of positive things also. Um, you know, throughout the history of, of this industrialized sound, um, phenomenon and the, and the increased noisiness of the world, um, there's been a lot of people who are aware of that and working on, uh, trying, trying to enact public health policy around noise pollution. Um, um, and now, so another, another thing that I thought was interesting at the CES show was that there were a lot of, a lot of, um, people working on hearing protection and, Hmm. um, and assistance, uh, very high tech attenuating earplugs that are not, not expensive, but, um, but, but well-designed to, limit damaging exposure without um compromising your sort of ability to to understand people or or listen to music um very very interesting advances in sort of bionic perception like like uh, dsp techniques to do to filter out um sounds that are far away without filtering out with while keeping sounds that are nearby um and I hope that there will be to see more application of material science to acoustic insulation in places like freeways. Um, mm. There's no reason we couldn't turn our attention to making making noisy technologies quieter and en- quieter engines. You know, right. um, with electric cars, electric, we've already yeah. seen a huge decrease. Yeah, absolutely. Noise. So I hope that you know um, we'll have more and more technologies that don't rely on combustion which is an which is an explosive noisy process Mm -hmm. um, that don't a lot rely on as many moving parts um, as more as more and more stuff goes into silicon or or um you know new new technologies for moving energy around um and then i think in the another sort of interesting aspect of the in, increased reliance on voice control voice voice communication was another huge huge topic at ces everyone is uh integrating voice controls into every conceivable device hmm. and you know that's that's going to be pretty a pretty weird experience and maybe not that useful in a lot of cases but i think it's going to awaken a lot of people to the to the sort of reality of of what is good and bad about about being constantly exposed to the voice communications i was talking to um our coworker justin lai um who's a health policy expert and he was turning me on to some of some of this uh, very interesting work being done in hospitals where um um there's all these different devices that are always beeping at you or alarms and stuff. And, and there's a real problem with, for example, uh, alarm fatigue, um, where, you know, doctors and nurses are hearing alarms all day and can't really, and like, don't react to them well Mm. enough. Um, and, and also of course for the patients, it's, it's psychologically very wearing to 
be around this stuff or if or you know i i imagine or i was imagining you know you know like the last thing you hear in life is going to be some beeping <laughs> alarm and um and then so there's there's some a couple of interesting projects about redesigning trying to trying to redesign that that environment and make and 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 it shades into um sound ui in general um to there's a there's some projects to make uh acoustic ui feedback more organic less less fatiguing more naturalistic um and i think we could you know the more the more we turn towards towards sound as a means to interact with our devices and our in our world the more care i hope we'll invest in in making sure it's it's uh uh, healthy on every level, the physiological mm. level and the, and the psychological level. Yeah. I mean, one trend we talk about a lot and hence the future is how as technology gets better and better, it disappears. Mm. Um, where, so whereas like maybe the eighties was like peak visual technology, like big boom box on the shoulder, like all mm. about the heart, which was kind of an awesome, like glory days in its own right. But I think as we look into the the rest of the 21st and the 22nd century, it's going to be more invisible technology that allows us to live more naturally as how we evolved to live. But with, you know, obviously a lot of advantages and how we can survive and connect and communicate and all those other things. So I think in the same way, as sound technology gets better and better, it will disappear in the sense mm. of it'll be less and less noisy. And hopefully we can create smarter ways to control sounds without having to admit too many sounds. And I mean, I think of like the in her where everyone's like walking around, talking quietly to their own OS, like doing incredibly complex functions. And and yeah, that's that's a little clunkier than a brain machine interface where it just goes directly. But that's a pretty good world if you can just talk quietly and get basically anything you need to done. So that's my best case scenario for the future of sound. I'm interested to hear about yours, Justin. Yeah, so I mean, mine would basically be the converse of my worst case scenario. So as we talked a lot about how we're making things better, you know, there's a lot of advances with making things quieter. Um, I do think one of the things that would be really awesome is to get any sort of well, okay, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So, like I said, the transportation system right now is still really loud um, with all the combustion engines, but I even think the just the rubber hitting the pavement with hundreds of thousands of cars on a highway, like that's still a decent amount of noise for the um, ecosystems around. But what bothers me even more is the talk about having drones do delivery. So if we have all these drones flying around over forests and disrupting even forest animals, not even animals that live near roadways, like that could be a huge issue. But mm. what would be awesome is if the something like the Boring Company works where we can move most of our transportation underground and away mm. from all of the environment. And the earth could just absorb those sounds. Yeah, basically. So, I mean, there's nothing really down there, at least as far as I'm aware, to damage with the sound, unless for whatever reason the sound damages the infrastructure of the tunnels. Obviously, that would be a huge issue. I don't think it will be, 
you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the engineers are thinking about all of that. Um, hmm. But yeah, that that would be kind of the best case is having all of these things, all the sound um, disappear, kind of like you were saying. And yeah. Uh, so I was going to say, I, I, it just struck me that I think another another best case scenario for sound would be if we can harness the power of sound. Like imagine if you were the god of sound or like a superhero <laughs> whose superpower is that you can manipulate sound in any way possible. I mean, the potentiality for that is pretty incredible. I mean, if you talk about like having cancerous cells in the body. I mean, if we already are able to dislodge tumors, if you're able to use sounds to specifically affect that which you cannot easily get to in a physical sense, but because you can bump atoms into each other, you can create yeah. a, uh, you know, you, you can create a domino effect that can allow us to do things that we are not able to do today. So that, that would be one additional yeah. aspect I would add one thing you know to kind of touch on that point that I've heard and Ezra you might call bullshit on this this is just something that I've 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 heard um works so, you know in some cases but the have you heard of like binaural beats which ha that have one frequency going in one ear another frequency in another and then your brain has to work to kind of connect the two so it helps with um brain hemisphere uh, communication is, sure. and then it, it yeah. like affects like the actual brain structure so you can maybe get to your brain directly just through sound and affect the brain structure um, which might be really interesting when you talk about like cognitive psychology and, and learning um, you know if we can figure out how to harness some of these interesting technologies that that would be a really cool scenario kind of like you were saying Hmm. Um, or maybe we'll maybe in like the super far future we'll somehow find a way to break the sound barrier and we'll be able to basically have radio chats with aliens <laughs> well, mm -hmm. with well, our past selves <laughs> radio isn't, isn't sound well that would be but i just i just mean like walkie talkie like How's it going there in the past? Mm, pretty good, but we have to solve this one problem. <laughs> All right, sending you the info. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I get it. Okay, so let's bring this home and get into the most likely future scenario. Most likely scenario. So Ezra, what do you think is the most likely future scenario for the next 50 to 100 years uh, as, a, as it's related to sound? Well, I have to kind of, um, I have to guess that it's going to be more like the worst case than the best case. Um, and given the, the way we've been going so far and the, in our disinclination to change directions. I think we're, we're going to be looking at a noisier world. Um, um, and a place where, where some people have the means and access to technologies to make their, their lives calmer and better and uh, happier from an acoustic health standpoint. And meanwhile, uh, we're we're going 
to be increasing the damage we do to, to acoustic ecologies um, before we've even studied them. Um, on the on the on the bright side, um, I think that that our sort of ex I think that uh, with for music, one of the most amazing things uh, that's ever happened to human to human activity human musical activity is the availability of te of technology to produce sounds uh, any any sound you can imagine, hmm. um, and and we basically have that now. And, and it's going to be getting better. I think people will, I think the next step with, with music technology will be working on, on user interface to, to make more powerful and expressive forms of sound production. And, um, and it's almost magical that I can, you know, listen to anyone's music in the world right now mm. that, that, that they made with, with no, that they made all by themselves. And distributed all by themselves, and and that's an exciting future to be in, as long as we um, can sort of pull back our our more excessive or or atavistic impulses, and and remember that 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 sound and music is a is a spiritual practice as well as a uh, as well as communication or or coercion. Um, right. And and remember that listening is as important as as sound making when it comes to to connecting with the world and with each other. I like it. Now, one thing I didn't think about in the best case scenario, though, is um, just to add a couple bit, a couple things to the best case is I think it would be awesome to fully understand the communication of like orcas and dolphins and all these other organisms and kind mm. of figure out how they communicate. And I just, I want that to be part of our future is trying to communicate with non-human organisms in a more like complete way. So just how you already have that thing where you can go to China and say, you know, hey, like, hello, how are you? And it'll translate it. You could say something to a dolphin and it would go like, <laughs> <laughs> so I know that probably the fundamental structure of how they communicate is so different from us, but if we could somehow make that translation, I think that would just bridge so many gaps. It would make them less like the other. Mm -hmm. And you know, we people I think more people would care if we could actually hear the thoughts of other organisms and kind of translate them into a human compatible form. That's um, interesting. So anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you see that a lot of these these really far out technologies will probably come into fruition. I just think in the likely case, we're like a lot of other episodes, we talk about how we're going to go through something bad before we get to a better scenario. So we might approach the worst case scenario first and then people will be like, oh, wow, that was terrible. We shouldn't have done this. We should have thought mm -hmm. more about acoustic ecology and then yeah. we can move on to the best case scenario. So I think yeah. that's probably what mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's accurate. I mean, when I think of future scenarios, I think about up until the AI revolution and then after the AI revolution or another way you can look <laughs> at it is up until the time where humans still have jobs and do work and then after the time where humans can 
you know, actually contribute to the economy in some meaningful way. And so up until we get to that point where people still have jobs, whatever, I think what Ezra said is accurate in that you're going to have to pay not to hear annoying sounds, just like how you're going to have to pay not to see annoying ad images. And I, I think that there is going to be a bit of a stratified world where to have your comforting environment where you only have the sounds and the visions and the stuff that you want, you're going to have to pay a premium for that. If you want the free version of the world, well, there's going to be ads. You're going to have to hear some shit you don't want to hear. You're going to have to see some shit you don't want to see. And I think once we get to the point where humans no longer contribute to the economy, it's, it's basically the whole economy is automated and we just have to worry about what's the best for our own quality of life. I think once we get to that point, whether it's 2050 or 2100 or whatever, then I think we're going to get very close to the best case scenario because people are going to realize that what matters most is the quality of our lives. And by thinking about the acoustic ecology and thinking about meaningful sounds and making meaningful connections with the musicians and, and everything that music and sound represent, I think we are going to have a bright future when you look far enough on the horizon. Yeah. All right. Any any final yeah. thoughts? Any advice for people of how to protect their hearing or any cool sound products or anything else, Ezra, on your end? Not really. I'd say you know, um, <clears throat> um, yeah. Just consider earplugs. Passive ear protection is is. Is, a, is very important uh, in, in the world we have right now, the urban world. Um, and it's worth investing 20 bucks in a, in a pair of earplugs that, that, that fits well and, and has a, a nice flat attenuation um, and is comfortable to, to wear while you're walking around. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been the future of sound. Thanks to Ezra for coming on the pod. And we hope to hear you, or we hope to see you guys next time for the future of board security. What has happened? What is currently happening? Yeah. Thanks, guys. And what will inevitably happen? Yeah. The past, the present, and the